What I want to do this morning is, first of all, I just want to make a statement about Easter, about the meaning of Easter, fairly brief statement upon which all of Easter hinges. You heard it, you've sung it in the songs that we sang as a congregation, you heard the kids uh, sing it. And it's just this, it's the fact of Easter, and that is the historical fact of Easter, and that is that Jesus rose from the dead. That is an historical fact. That's not a fanciful wish. That's not a fairy tale spun by eager imaginations. It is a fact of history. It is a fact that 11 men, followers of Jesus, for three years from age 30 to 33, men who were at best undependable, fickle, kind of tossed to and fro, doubting, not sure before the resurrection who after the resurrection they became radically different men. They, be, they became men who were unmovable in their conviction that Jesus was alive. They became men who were unstoppable in their proclamation, men who could not be shut up. Even men who willingly, 11 of the 12 who willingly said, I will die for my faith in the resurrection. I will not stop to declare the truth that he is risen. He is risen indeed. Now, it is not my intent this morning to try to prove to you the resurrection of Jesus Christ. However, please hear me out. It can be proven. I don't have time to do that this morning. That's not the direction that I am going, but I want to make a few comments about the fact, the historical fact of the resurrection because what I am going to say that follows is based upon that. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to read you three different quotes by three famous men, really men of renown, genius, men with minds of genius who considered the evidence of the resurrection and came to the conclusion that it is nothing but an historical, verifiable, reasonable fact of history, the evidence of which undeniably points to its truth. These are men who, with their brilliant minds, studied the evidence, the evidence of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. First one I would submit to you is Dr. Simon Greenleaf, famous professor 
at the Harvard School of Law. He is one of two men who was really used uh, to really advance the Harvard School of Law to its eminent position. He wrote a treaty called a Treaty on the Law of Evidence. And that three-volume work is considered one of the greatest single authorities on the subject of evidence used in the court of law, still to this day. And Greenleaf examined the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, looked at it closely, studied it deeply. He applied the principles that he had written in his three-volume treaty. He took those principles for sound, verifiable evidence, and he applied them to the resurrection story of Jesus Christ. And here was his conclusion. Following that examination, he wrote that according to the laws and legal evidence used in courts of law, there is more evidence for the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ than just about any other event in human history. Wow. Number two, Dr. Frank Morrison. He's a well-known lawyer. He had an interesting story. He actually liked the story of Jesus, but not the story of the resurrection. He actually believed that the story of the resurrection downgraded the story of Jesus because it was certainly un. Provable. Certainly it was a fairy tale. It was a fanciful yarn spun by overzealous people. And why did they have to ruin the story of Jesus with something that really discredited him? Because it certainly was not true. And so with his brilliant mind, he decided he was going to set the record straight and examine the evidence and write the book that would prove that the resurrection was a fallacy. Really trying to do it to advance what he thought was a good story. And he considered the evidence, studied the facts deeply, extensively, and he came to a very different conclusion. He never wrote the book he thought he was going to write. He wrote a different book. He wrote a book called Who Rolled the Stone Away? And here was the title of the first chapter, the book that refused to be written. You see, he didn't write the book he set out to write. The evidence demanded that he write a different tale. And what he wrote was that the historical evidence of the resurrection is undeniable. If you consider the facts, it is reasonable and provable beyond a shadow of a doubt. One more. This is the most famous trial lawyer of history, Sir Lionel Lucu. He was, matter of fact, I believe if you look in the Guinness Book of World Records, he's there as the most successful trial lawyer of history. He had 
245 consecutive murder trial victories. What kind of critical mind for examining evidence must he have possessed? There is no one else in history that even comes close to his record in the courts of law. And he was asked to take his mind and his brilliance and his training and his deductive reasoning and apply it to the story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ recorded in the Gospels. And here is his conclusion. I say unequivocally that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. Folks, the point I'm just driving at to set the stage for what I want to say next is just this. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a fact. It's an historical fact. It happened with a real man at a real moment in history on a very specific weekend where he died on a Friday and on Sunday morning he stepped out of the tomb. It's a fact. It's not a fairy tale. It's not some fanciful imagination. It is the truth of history. Now what I want to do, standing upon that platform of truth, and I'm assuming that you're here this morning on, on Easter Sunday morning and Resurrection Sunday because you already believe that. You believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Why else would you be here? Well, maybe, maybe a few of you were dragged here by your spouse or your parents. Yeah, I'm aware, I'm aware of that. Been there, done that. But what I want to ask you this morning do you believe? I mean, do you really believe? I don't mean do you give mental, mental acquiescence to the fact up here like one day a year or so around Easter time, oh yeah, that's right, Jesus is alive. I mean, do you really believe in the resurrection to the point where it invades and influences every aspect of your life? Every day of your life. That's what it's intended to do. Short of that, he died in vain for you and rose in vain for you. So here's what I want to ask in this second section here. What are the ramifications of the resurrection? I mean, what does the resurrection mean to you and me about life? And specifically in three ways. Number one, what does the resurrection have to say about the person of Jesus Christ, number one. What does it validate? What does it prove about him? Number two, what does the resurrection have to say about all the other religions of the world? And number three, what does the resurrection have to say about humanity in general? What does it have to say about Jesus? What does it have to say about the other religions of the world? And what does it have to say about humanity, about you and me? So first of all, what does the resurrection of Jesus have to say about the person of Jesus? What does it prove? Number one, 
First and foremost, it proves that Jesus Christ is God. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the proof, the undeniable proof that Jesus is divine, that he is God in the flesh of man. You see, history, and we need to make this distinction because what history has is a long line of historical figures that are religious leaders that have religious faiths built around them. So the question is, is Jesus just one of the men in that line of religious leaders or is there something unequivocally different about him? Something that once and for all separates him infinitely from them in greatness, in eminence, in identity. And what I am submitting to you this morning is that the resurrection of Jesus proves that he, he alone is the God-man, that all others are imposters. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. You see, Christianity is the only religion that has the claim of its founder that he died and was buried and then busted forth from the tomb. No other religion dares to make that claim. In fact, the other great religions of the world, their leaders, their founders, they're buried in a tomb somewhere. They're in a coffin somewhere. Their decaying, decomposed remains are visited on a regular basis so people can come to where the remnants of their body that once lived but is now in a decomposed state can come and pay homage to that one who is dead. And they know that. That's why they come, because he is there. The remains of him is there. But that is not true with Christianity. No. We don't serve a decomposed leader. I've been to the tomb, folks. I've been to the tomb. I stooped down and walked through the door. I looked at the slab upon which his body laid, and I can tell you he is not there. He is not there, and there are no remains of him there. That's because he got up off that slab. He took off those grave clothes, and he walked through that closed tomb to new life, to undefeatable life. Jesus Christ is alive. That proves that he is God. Here's what Paul wrote. Romans chapter 1, verse 4. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power. How? What declared him to be the Son of God in power? According to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. You see, Paul opens up 
the greatest letter ever written with this great proclamation. The proof that Jesus is God is centered in the resurrection that he accomplished. His life from the dead. That's the proof. That's what the great apostle wrote. Here's what Jesus Christ himself said. There were those that were asking of him a sign, proving him to be who he claimed to be. He claimed to be God. And Jesus said, no sign will be given except one. I'm just going to give you one sign, and this one sign is going to be the undeniable proof that I am who I say that I am. Just like Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, so me, the Son of Man, is going to be in the body of the earth. I'm going to be buried three days, and I'm going to rise again on the third day. Jesus made the claim that his resurrection was going to be the proof that attested to everything about who he was and what he did all centered in that one event, that one moment, that one act of history that proved he was God. I've already talked about the 11 disciples in general who were skeptics and unbelievers at Jesus' death but who were radically transformed. Let me give you the specifics about one. His name was Thomas. You know Thomas, right? Thomas the doubter. Thomas the skeptic. But let's not be too hard on Thomas because, in fact, all of them were doubters. All of them were skeptics. He's just the famous one. You see, the other disciples had seen Jesus alive and had the proof of the resurrection seared into their heart. Thomas was not there. And when Thomas came, they said, Thomas, Jesus is alive. At least Thomas was honest, right? Thomas said, I will not believe. Here's what it's going to take for me. This is a Brad Suter paraphrase here. Here's what it's going to take for me to believe, said Thomas. I'm going to have to put my hands into the marks of death on the living Jesus in order to believe. That's what it's going to have to be for me. They were behind locked doors. And all of a sudden, into the room, Jesus appeared. And he came up to Thomas. And here's what he said in John 20, 27 and 28. Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it into my side. Do not disbelieve, Thomas, but believe. And when Thomas encountered the resurrection of Jesus Christ, what was the conclusion that Thomas came to? Let me read it for you from his own words. Standing there before the resurrected Lord, Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. Thomas made the declaration, the proclamation, standing before the resurrected Christ. You are God. You are divine. 
You are God in the flesh. You see, that's what the resurrection of Jesus Christ proves. It proved it to those waffling disciples that made them firm and unmovable into their conviction, even to the point of willingly, joyously embracing death. Why? Because they knew that death had no power anymore. That Jesus was the victor of death. Resurrection of Jesus turned Thomas the doubter into Thomas the worshiper, and it's been doing that down through history by the tens of thousands and millions and is still doing it today because it's a fact of history. It can be verified. It is reasonable. If You can certainly approach it and refuse to believe, but then it's just your conviction that blinds you to the truth. But if you'll open your eyes and if you'll look honestly and consider the evidence, the only reasonable conclusion is that Jesus did just what he said he would do. He busted out of the tomb on that first Easter morning. The resurrection proves about Jesus that he is God, that he's divine. Number two, the resurrection proves about Jesus this great truth that Jesus keeps his promises. Resurrection proves that Jesus Christ keeps his promises. You know what Easter is? Easter is the unfolding revelation of history of a great truth that began in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, at the very moment of the rebellion of mankind, Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, and God is in the midst of judging them for their sin, and he says to Eve in that judgment, a seed is going to come, Eve, from you, a man. And that man is going to crush the serpent's head. He is going to defeat the devil, a seed from you, a man. 1,900 years, I'm just going to give you a couple of highlights down through the Old Testament. 1,900 years before the birth of Jesus, God came to another man, to Abraham, and he said, Abraham, I'm going to make you a promise. And the promise is this. From your lineage, from your body, from your seed is going to come a man. And that man is going to be a blessing to the entire human race. 700 years before the birth of Christ, the prophet Isaiah wrote about the coming one, the great promised one that Genesis 3 had talked about and that Genesis 15 and Abraham's story had talked about. And here's what Isaiah said about this one that was to come. He wrote that he's going to be the everlasting God. The and the everlasting Father, the mighty God, the Prince of Peace. That this one to come was going to be the mighty God 700 years before Jesus was born. Isaiah went on to write that what was going to happen to that man that was going to come, that God-man, is that he was going to be killed. He was going to be crucified. 
and that he was going to, three days after his crucifixion, he was going to rise from the dead. 700 years before Jesus came. Then Jesus came. And at 30 years old, here's what he did. He gathered around him a group of men called his disciples. And he began to teach them the central truth about himself. And here's what he said. I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried. And three days later, I'm coming back to life. He told them that several times. Read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You'll see it for yourself. He declared the great central truth about himself, which was, I'm going to prove who I am. I'm going to die as a sacrifice. I'm going to be buried, and I'm going to come back to life three days later. And here's the good news. Jesus is the God who keeps his promises. Jesus is the God who does what he says he will do. The resurrection proves that. Listen, the resurrection is the greatest miracle of history. It's the greatest miracle that Jesus performed. And if Jesus performed that greatest, that most eminent miracle, his own resurrection from the dead, here's what that means. Every other promise he made, you can take it to the bank. There's money there to cover the the debt. Jesus Christ is the God who keeps his promises. If the resurrection proves to us anything, it proves that very thing. You know, this is a book of promises. There are thousands of promises in this book. And here's what the scripture says. Every one of the promises of God are yes and amen in the person of Jesus Christ. They're all tied into him. Jesus, by his death and resurrection, he paid for every promise. He made every promise good that is in the word of God. He is a God who keeps his promises. The resurrection proves that he does. Number three, third truth about Jesus. Number one, it proves that Jesus is God. The resurrection does. Number two, the resurrection proves that Jesus Christ keeps his promises. And number three, the resurrection proves that Jesus' sacrifice for sins was sufficient and fully accepted by the Father to pay for humanity's penalty. Let me say that again. The resurrection of Jesus is the undeniable proof that the sacrifice Jesus made for sins was a fully sufficient sacrifice. Listen to Romans chapter 4, verse 25. Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. 
Jesus was raised for our justification. Here's what justification means. Justification means that you are made just. It means that you are made right. You are taken from a place of being in enmity as an enemy of God and you are made into a person who no longer is an enemy of God but is now in a peaceful relationship with God, is now actually a child of God. That's what justification means. You are made right with God. You are wrong with God in your sin. You are under God's just judgment, under his wrath. But because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Romans chapter 4, verse 29, verse 25, Jesus was raised for our justification. He was raised to make us just. Here's what that means. That means that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is God the Father's declaration that I accept the sacrifice of Jesus for the sins of humanity and if you put your faith in Christ alone, I'm going to accept his sacrifice as payment in full for your sin. That's what it means that he was raised for our justification. It means that the Father has said, yes, it was enough. He has paid the debt for you. You believe in him, your debt is finished. Your condemnation is over. Your judgment is done. Your sins are atoned for. Every one of them, past, present, and future, for everyone who believes in Christ. The resurrection of Jesus proves that. You see... If Jesus and his death was not a fully sufficient sacrifice, guess where Jesus would be still? He'd still be in the grave. He would still be in the grave. Because he died to pay the penalty for sin, so as long as he's dead, the penalty is being paid. But if he comes back to life, that is a statement of divine order that the penalty for sin has been satisfied. And that is what the resurrection does. It is an exclamation from heaven that God the Father has accepted as fully sufficient, perfectly capable was the sacrifice of Jesus for the sins of man. That's just three things, three ramifications of the resurrection concerning the person of Jesus Christ. He's God, he keeps his promises, and his sacrifice was sufficient for you. Now let me make another statement, go down another track here on ramifications of the resurrection. What does the resurrection of Jesus prove about other religions? Just think about that for a minute. What does the resurrection of Jesus Christ prove about the other religions of the world? You know, there is a striking difference. There is a second striking difference. I've already pointed out one, but all the other religions of the world have a dead founder. Christianity 
has a living founder. But I want to share with you another difference. I wonder if you've thought about this before. The resurrection of Jesus Christ makes Christianity so radically different than every other religion of the world. And here's why. Every other religion of the world, they are based upon the ethical teachings of their founders. Just think about that. Every religion of the world, except Christianity, is based upon the ethical teachings of their founders. The Muslim faith is based upon the teachings of Muhammad. On his teachings. Buddhism is based upon the teachings of a man that was called Buddha. There was a man named Confucius that gave a set of teachings that a religion is organized around his teachings. There were other great leaders of the world that gave a set of ideologies and philosophies, men like Karl Marx who founded Marxism. Now, I don't know if you would classify this as a religion, but the reality is it's a step of faith. Evolution is based upon the teachings of a man by the name of Darwin. But here's the reality of those in contrast to the teachings or the person of Jesus Christ. You see, all of them are based upon unobservable data. I just want you to think about that for a minute. I'm talking about even evolution. It's based upon a step of faith. It's unobservable data. But here's the difference of Christianity. Christianity is not based upon the ethical teachings of its leader. Now, before you misunderstand what I just said, hear me out carefully. Christianity is not based upon the ethical teachings of its leader, its founder, Jesus. Christianity has the ethical teachings of its founder, Jesus, that are higher than any other teachings the world has ever heard, but that is not what Christianity is founded upon. Here's the radical difference. Christianity is based upon acts and facts of history. Christianity is based upon acts and facts of history. It is centered upon Somebody that really lived and what he did. Not what he said, but what he did. Think about some of the stories that we know about his life. It was said that Jesus taught like no man had ever taught. He taught as one who had authority. And the people were amazed. In fact, at one point, there was some guards that were sent to arrest him, and they came back empty-handed, and those that had sent them said, where is he? I mean, you certainly found him. He's all over the public square. Where is he? And their only response was this. Yeah, we found him. But he spoke like no man has ever spoke. Now, what was behind that? What was behind that? The authority behind that. Let me tell you what the authority was. 
He touched blind eyes and they could see again. He came to crippled legs that had never walked in 40 years and he infused them with strength and life so that they jumped up. He came to the funeral procession that was leaving the town of Nain and the child that was in the coffin and the mother, the broken mother that was following the coffin and he stopped the procession and he gave the child back to his mother. That's the authority in the teaching of Jesus. He's the one that called across the tomb of La- the threshold of Lazarus's tomb and called a dead man that had been there 4 days and was rotting out of the tomb. That's authority. That backs up the teaching. You see, Christianity is based upon acts and upon facts. And the greatest fact that Christianity is based upon is the fact that a man said, I'm going to die, and three days later, not four, not two, not seven, three days later, I'm coming back from the dead, and he did what he said he was going to do. That's the act and the fact of history that Christianity is based upon. And it's that fact that gives credence, that gives validity to his teachings as being authoritative, as being the one who knows what he's talking about. He can talk about the spiritual realm. He can talk about life after death. Why? He's been there, and he's come back. That's why you can trust what he says because of what he did. You see, that's the difference between Christianity and every other religion. Every other religion is based upon a set of ethical teachings. Christianity is based upon a set of actions and facts that are actually recorded in human history and can be verified. Radically different. And so you say, well, wait a minute, what does that do then? What does that say then to the other religions of the world? And that's the question I'm asking, right? What does the resurrection of Jesus prove about the other religions of the world? And I want to unapologetically say this to you, it condemns them. It condemns them. It says that they are empty and hopeless and powerless and are actually the deception of the enemy to take people to hell. The resurrection of Jesus proves that. You say, brother, how is that so? Because the resurrection of Jesus proves that Jesus and what he said is true. And here's what he said. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Jesus did not say, no man comes to the Father except through me and Muhammad or except through me and Buddha or except through me and Confucius. No, he said, I am the way, meaning the one way. I am 
the truth, meaning the one truth. I am the life, meaning the one life. There is one road, one path, one way to get to the Father, and that is through the Son, Jesus Christ. And so here's what that means by implication. Every other attempted path, every other attempted means to make ourselves right with God, they are a lie. They're empty. They're powerless. They're actually deceptions. That's what the resurrection proves about every other religion of the world is that they are deceptions. There is one name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved and that name is Jesus Christ. One final area for your consideration on the ramification of the resurrection. What does the resurrection of Jesus Christ say about humanity? What does it prove about humanity? First of all, it proves that Jesus is the judge of humanity. The resurrection of Jesus proves that he is the one who will judge humanity. Acts chapter 7, verse 30, 17, verse 31. Acts 17, verse 31. Listen. God the Father has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. God the Father has fixed a day in which he's going to judge the world and he's going to do it by a man whom he has appointed. Who is that man? And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Do you see what Peter said right there? He said that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the proof of heaven that Jesus Christ is the judge of humanity. That in the end, humanity is going to stand before the one who was alive and who died and is alive again. He is the judge. He is the one that condemns. Scripture says, who is the one that condemns? And the answer is, Jesus Christ the righteous. You see, he is the only one that can be the judge because he is the only one who is righteous. He is the God who left heaven and put on the flesh of man, married the divine nature with the human nature, lived a perfect sinless life, and then paid the penalty for sin. And when it was fully satisfied, he rose back from the dead. And all history now is moving to an ultimate final day of judgment where humanity is going to stand before Jesus Christ, the Lord and King, as the judge of all. Now the judgment... And all will be judged, but the judgment is going to be different for believers than unbelievers. For believers, they're going to stand before what the New Testament calls the Bema seat, the B-E-M-A seat of judgment. And that seat of judgment is different than what the unbelievers are going to stand before. You see, the Bema seat of judgment is not a judgment of either heaven or hell. 
Everyone who is a believer is guaranteed heaven, guaranteed eternal life. What the Bema Seat of Judgment is, it's where those who are believers are going to have their lives tested by fire, and that which is burnt up will be lost, but that which remains will be that which they receive their eternal rewards based upon. All of them will go to heaven and receive the reward of heaven. But based upon what the believer did in this life will be a system of rewards. I don't understand all of that, but I know that it is true. Jesus said it many times. And then Paul said it clearly in one of his letters. There's going to be rewards. That's what happens at the Bema seat where believers stand before Jesus Christ as their judge and are ushered into heaven and are given out rewards. But there's another judgment seat. The other judgment seat is called the great white throne judgment. And the great white throne judgment is written about in Revelations chapter 20. And it's before the great white throne of judgment, before Jesus Christ, the judge of that throne, that unbelievers are going to stand, those who have refused to accept Christ. And here is what John, in his letter called Revelations, in his vision of the future, what God gave to him, here is what he wrote. Then I saw a great white throne, Revelations 20, 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. Pretty awesome judge. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Here's the story. There's a book, the great book, the book of life, and then there are the books. If your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, you have eternal life. You will not be judged toward hell. You will be given heaven. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. For those names that are not written in the Lamb's book of life, there is a set of books, books in which your deeds are recorded, your thoughts, your motives, your desires. And based upon the evidence of what you have done, you will be judged. Standing before the great white throne judgment, before the great judge of all the earth, the Lord Jesus Christ. The perfect one, the only one who is worthy to judge, for he himself is perfect. see the resurrection of Jesus Christ 
is the proof that he is going to be the judge. God raised him up from the dead to prove that his sacrifice was acceptable and he exalted him to the throne to make him the judge of humanity. Let me tell you another thing that it proves, the resurrection of Jesus proves for believers. It proves for believers that their resurrection unto eternal life is guaranteed. It proves to believers that their resurrection unto eternal life is guaranteed. 1 Peter 1, 3, and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Peter wrote that through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, you have an inheritance, a living hope, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Let me just talk about that for a minute. What does the resurrection of Jesus prove? It proves our resurrection, but what about our resurrection does it prove? Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus Christ was raised bodily from the grave. His body that had been killed was raised to new life, was raised to a glorious body. He was not just raised in spirit so that he was an ambiguous, floating, nondescript something that was kind of hanging around as a force. No, his body was raised, literally. I mean, they touched him after his resurrection. He had substance. It was his flesh. It was his bones. He ate fish before them to prove his substance, his literal resurrection. You see, here's the reality. His resurrection, if you're a believer, you're going to have that kind of a resurrection. That means that you're not going to be resurrected in spirit only so that you're some nondescript, ambiguous, floating something or other in a sea of nondescript, no-name something or others that are just kind of hovering around in heaven bumping into each other. No, you're going to be resurrected in your body. And that physical body then is going to be transformed into a glorified body like unto Jesus Christ's. That's the promise of the resurrection. That means that you're not going to be nondescript, nonspecific, a non-individual. You're going to be you. 
And those that you know that are resurrected are going to be them. And you're going to recognize them. And you're going to know them. And they're going to know you just like Jesus was recognizable and knowable. Just like Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration were recognizable and knowable. When you are resurrected as a believer, it's going to be you with your body, but oh, it's going to be a new and improved model. I mean infinitely improved. It's going to have the power. It's going to have the glory. It's going to have life and vitality that is undefeatable, that is undecayable. That is unconquerable. That death can no longer touch. Decay can no longer influence. You see, that's what the resurrection of Jesus Christ proves for us. Because his resurrection, the promise of the New Testament all over, is that his resurrection is going to become ours. On the day that we see him, we're going to become like him because we're going to see him face to face, the New Testament says. Gary Habermas, Dr. Gary Habermas, is a leading expert in the evidence of the resurrection. Authored some great material on the evidence of the resurrection. PhD from a secular university. Several years ago, he engaged in a two-day debate with one of the most famous atheists, Anthony Flew. And the topic of the debate was the resurrection of Jesus. And Anthony Flew, the famous atheist, was going to disprove the resurrection and Dr. Gary Habermas was going to seek to prove the resurrection. And so in a public debate, public two-day debate, with a panel of esteemed judges. That debate was carried out, and at the end of the debate, to a panel of non-biased judges, four of them said unequivocally, Dr. Gary Habermas won the day. The fifth one was undecided. He so effectively won the day because the evidence that he presented was incontrovertible. It shot holes in the evidence given by the atheist, showing it to be false and empty. Dr. Habermas was asked this question. Why do you spend so much of your life studying the resurrection? Listen to his answer. He said, I do that because of this. Every shred of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is evidence for my eventual resurrection. See, he understood that truth. If Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he is the promise-keeping God. That fact 
proves it. And he has promised me a resurrection like his. So every shred of evidence of his resurrection is the proof of my own. And folks, that is true. Jesus said in John eleven, twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. Finally, just as a tag on to that, what the resurrection of Jesus Christ proves to the believer is that the believer is eternally safe and secure. Eternally safe and secure. The resurrection is the exclamation point on the safety, the eternal safety of the believer. Jesus said in Revelation 1.18, I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. I am the living one. I was dead, but I am now alive, and I'm alive forevermore, and I got a set of keys. And the keys that I have are the keys to death, meaning what does a key do? Well, a key unlocks something, number one. It unlocks the bonds of death, the bondage of death, the hopelessness of death. But a key also solves a mystery, right? It's another way a key is used. The mystery of death that no one throughout human history had solved, Jesus Christ solved it. Jesus Christ is the solution to death. So the reality is, if you have Jesus Christ, you have the key that unlocks the fear of death, the hopelessness of death, and makes it impotent in your life. And you have Jesus, the key who unlocks the mystery to it. He's the one that was on the other side and came back. He's the one that defeated and conquered it and made it his servant. You see, what the resurrection of Jesus Christ proves is that everyone who receives his resurrection, it is going to be a resurrection that is one like Jesus. Listen again, and behold, I am alive for how long? Forevermore. Forevermore. That is the proof of your eternal safety if you are in Christ through faith. You see, the death that he, victory he won over death was not just for him, it was for you. You'll never die again if you've placed your faith in him. No one will ever pluck you out of his hand. He has placed within you an incorruptible seed that will abide forever. And what he does is he puts within us a wellspring of life that wells up to eternal life. That's what he said in John. You see, all of these facts put together, if I could summarize it with this, they make this great statement that with Jesus Christ, all of the promises of God are yes and amen. If you have Jesus, 
They're all yours. And you know, the Bible says some incredible things about those who are Jesus Christ. 